This is Banished and I'm Amna Khalid. Today, a story of an attempted cancellation that was not successful. In fall 2021, the philosophy department at Rhodes College invited a guest speaker, the bioethicist Peter Singer, who was dubbed the world's most influential living philosopher by The New Yorker and named one of Time's 100 most influential people back in 2005. In the build-up to Singer's webinar on pandemic ethics, a number of students and faculty, largely from the history, anthropology, and sociology departments and the African Studies program, waged a campaign to have him disinvited on the grounds that his reprehensible beliefs deny the very humanity of people with disabilities. The many accusations, as you'll soon hear, were misreadings and gross distortions of Singer's work. And so at a time when other schools like MIT were canceling speakers deemed problematic, the philosophy department at Rhodes stood firm. I spoke with Associate Professor in Department Chair Rebecca Tuvel and philosophy professor Daniel Cullen about how and why they prevailed. I started by asking both Tavelle and Cullen to tell me a bit about their work. I work primarily in the philosophy of gender and race, and especially on questions of identity. And despite having experienced quite a bit of backlash to my work on transracial identity or those who identify as members of a different race, I'm still working on that topic and finishing up a book manuscript called Changing Race, the Metaphysics and Ethics of Transracialism. So basically you're saying you have no learning curve and you continue to persist pursuing topics which get you into hot water. That's right. (laughs) Yes. Apparently I like the pain. (laughs) Daniel. I'm a scholar of political philosophy. For the last year and a half, I would say, I've been a member of the bipartisan policy task force on campus-free expression. So I've been discussing these issues we're all concerned about with primarily a a group of college presidents, which was a really valuable and interesting experience for me. I might just add that the report that you were part of producing is actually one of the best that I have read. It really hits the nail on the head, and I, I really appreciate the way you have concrete suggestions for different constituencies on campus. On Banished, we've been really focusing on instances of cancellations and censorship. When I heard the story of what happened on the Rhodes campus with respect to the invitation that the philosophy department extended to Peter Singer to come and speak on campus, I was heartened. I was like, this is a story of a push to cancel, which was resisted and successfully resisted. And one of the things that I find deeply troubling is the lack of leadership in higher education right now. You know, having that kind of moral fortitude to stand up for the values that matter. I'd really like you to flesh out what happened on campus. And perhaps one of you could briefly, for our listeners who may not be familiar with why Singer's views are so controversial, help explain how they've become controversial, and how perhaps they've been misinterpreted? With respect to what happened on campus, we decided to 
have several kickoff events for our newly reconstituted philosophy department. As Dan mentioned, he and a couple of other folks moved over from political science into philosophy. And so we thought it would be great to introduce to the community what it is that philosophers do. And so we discussed having a panel on a topic of great public interest, namely the pandemic and the ethical implications of the pandemic. And who better to discuss this issue than Peter Singer, who had been writing on the pandemic and who's the most famous living ethicist. We extended the invitation and he was glad to accept it. And the webinar was myself, Dan Cullen, and our postdoc in philosophy, Eric Sampson, engaging Singer in a discussion on different moral implications of the pandemic. I didn't anticipate the response that we received. It started with one faculty member at Rhodes who sent a faculty staff-wide email objecting to the webinar and demanding its cancellation. That person identifies as a member of the disabled community, and Singer has long endured critique from disability activists for his views on disability, but some I would argue are misinterpretations of his views on that topic or referring to some of his more outdated views on this topic. So he has adjusted his understanding of disability and its relationship to well-being over time. You know, Singer's views are complicated He has some counterintuitive views, certainly, as what's known as a utilitarian Mm -hmm. or somebody who thinks that we should evaluate the morality of different acts by looking to the consequences that they produce. That can give the impression of a kind of cold, calculated worldview where we simply see how much suffering will be produced, for instance, by the loss of one life or however many lives and then do the calculation and see and act morally on that basis. So some people think that's not the right way to go about morality. Singer thinks that that's how we ought to think about morality. So if I can just interject over here, a quick clarification. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is that not like a very old tradition in moral philosophy to do that kind of calculus? It doesn't mean necessarily that you are endorsing it, but it is a tradition of argumentation and constructing a rationale for what would be the ethical or moral thing to do. From my limited understanding of moral philosophy, you always pose like almost bizarre questions of the value of human life and then assess it in that fashion. Absolutely. I mean, as a utilitarian, Singer is part of a longstanding tradition in moral theory, going back to Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, who were the founding utilitarians. So he's certainly not alone. Some of his more controversial positions relate to, first off, the fact that he doesn't see a meaningful difference in moral status between, say, a very late term viable fetus and a newborn baby. So for that reason, he thinks that in the same way that it can be defensible to euthanize or abort a very late-term viable fetus if its life is going to be one of significant suffering, you can extend the same to a newborn baby. 
infanticide in that sense is morally on par with very late-term abortions. So that's one of his controversial positions. And so people run around saying, you know, he's a baby killer, which is a gross misrepresentation of that view. At the end of the day, he's just trying to track what's going to reduce suffering for all sentient beings. That relates to the second part of his controversial views. He doesn't see sentient animal lives as inherently less worthy of moral consideration because, again, animals can suffer. So they ought to also be included in the moral calculus, hence his views on meat eating. The pleasure that humans get from eating meat is not outweighed by the amount of suffering that animals endure. And all of his views can be understood along these lines. So he's the father of the effective altruism movement, and that's an effort to try to reduce suffering by, say, encouraging people to donate a small portion of their income to buy malaria nets that can save lives in poor African countries. I think if you take snippets of his views out of context, they can strike people the wrong way. Oh my gosh, he thinks that animals are more valuable than humans. Or oh my gosh, he thinks we should kill all disabled people. But reading him in context, that's really not the right implication. He actually doesn't think that there's anything inherently different between those with severe disabilities and those without. He's just trying to track suffering. And increasingly, he rejects the idea that having a disability is tantamount to having a life of suffering. He doesn't think that those are equivalent. Singer came to his notorious and provocative argument about justifying infanticide in quite carefully circumscribed cases by learning from Australian medical practitioners what their actual practice was when faced with a newborn infant whose life was not going to be viable. And he learned that they were, in effect, starved to death. And his question was, really, is that the only moral response in this tragic situation? And it was that that led him to think through what he saw as a problem in the principle of the sanctity of life, which he then goes on to criticize in in the way that philosophers do. But the leap to the conclusion that Singer denies the humanity of people with disabilities is really unfair. And I bring this up because Rebecca mentioned reading Singer in context. Well, those who were protesting the invitation to Singer hadn't read him in context and, in fact, hadn't read him at all. That was evident. What they knew of Singer was what they had gleaned from the activist website and remains of the controversy when Singer was first appointed to Princeton. We were aware, of course, that Singer is a provocative, even notorious philosopher. All the more reason to invite him, actually, on an academic campus, right? You're going to debate ideas. Exactly. But we, we weren't intending to cause an event, so to speak, in this way. We wanted a a philosopher who could speak in an interesting way about the various dimensions of pandemic ethics. And frankly, 
Singer was an hour original idea. It was recommended to us. And I think our first reaction was, well, sure, you know, and why don't we invite the prime minister of Britain next time? <laughs> why not? And I think that's important to know. But it was interesting that our chief critic at the end of one of his comments declared that Singer's ideas were controversial exclamation point, as though that would be grounds for disqualification as opposed to what you say, naturally an invitation. Isn't that what college community exists for and particularly perhaps a philosophy department? So I think it's fair to say that we were pretty stunned by not so much the reaction, I suppose that could be expected as the confident argument justifying it, which we thought was on its face just untenable and really quite dangerous to the whole mission and understanding of purpose that a college ought to have. I, I really do think it's important to emphasize that the context in which he developed these views, they're coming out of a place for being concerned about the death of these infants in a very inhumane fashion. So it's interesting that he gets seen as someone who is trying to kill babies as opposed to someone who's saying babies are being killed. How can we do it most humanely? Because that seems to be the standard practice, at least in Australia, when he was writing this. Or rather that they were not being killed, but kept alive in conditions of horrible suffering. So we ought to consider whether or not it would be better for them. Correct. Yes. And that's the same with his views on euthanasia and why he's a proponent with people who are suffering and who often want their lives to end, but they can't do so if they live in a state, for instance, where it's impermissible. Yeah. By the way, I should add that I'm not a defender of Singer on these grounds, but the idea that this argument should somehow be excluded and not faced by people who are studying bioethics and, and medical ethics, I think, is simply intolerable. No, I, I agree. And I think the thing that I'd like to stress is that it's not that we're trying to endorse or justify, but yeah. we're trying to understand and dispel some misunderstandings about how his work is understood. But I do think that there is something quite evil that happens when you decontextualize people's work and take a snippet and then make it a talking point. Because mm. precisely this, he goes from being someone who's concerned about the humanity or the treatment of these individuals to being someone who is, you know, wielding a sledgehammer. And that's just not how I would hope that academics, at least, would engage in discussion. So this brings me now to the second point that you mentioned, Daniel, which is what was happening on the Rhodes campus. Now, just to kind of reiterate, Singer was coming to Rhodes not to talk about disability. He was coming to talk about the pandemic. So something that's quite different from his views that are seen as controversial. Correct. But as I read about this and, you know, talked to people I can imagine students getting upset. This is not a new situation. This happens on many campuses. Students get upset. But there is a new trend that is worthy of our attention, which is more disturbing to my mind, which is academics, faculty, jumping on this kind of bandwagon and wanting to censor ideas. I am frankly baffled and speechless. Can you tell us a little bit about where these critiques were coming from? I would say generally, 
the critique comes from a perspective that it's more important to advance the cause of justice as it's understood than to engage in the traditional practice of examining all ideas, including and perhaps especially ideas that challenge or controvert in some way our most confident assumptions and predispositions. The thing that concerned me the most about this whole affair is that the response of our faculty critics, I think, could be summarized this way, that rather than pause and examine the different issues that are at stake. And I, I'll admit that inviting a speaker with a controversial reputation is something that can deserve some discussion in advance. But we never went through that stage. Our critics moved immediately to mobilizing and mobilizing students to participate in an attempt to get this event canceled. And that, to me, is the most disconcerting and perhaps long-term threat. So your question, I think, is what accounts for that disposition to rally, to fend off this threat? What does it mean for an intellectual community to behave in such a way as though it's guarding the palace against attack? I think it comes from a sense that there are some things that are more important than the free exchange of of ideas, that there ought to be some limits for the sake of preserving a sense of, I'll call it justice, but the term that we use today is inclusion or inclusivity. It's my perspective, and I think Rebecca shares this, and so do you, that the way to practice in, a, in an intellectual community inclusion is to remain focused all the time on inclusion of everyone in the activity of knowledge seeking. And that can't proceed without controversy. And it can't proceed without generating feelings of offense. But the idea that those feelings would be a conversation stopper is the conclusion, I think, that is just manifestly indefensible if if we intend to remain an institution devoted primarily to seeking knowledge. I totally agree. And I want to follow up on Amna's question about the source of the backlash during the Singer webinar. It was a webinar, by the way. So if you really didn't want to attend you could just not sign on, right? There was no one physically coming to campus. It is disturbing to note how often the source of the backlash is coming from fellow academics nowadays, not originally from students. And this was certainly the case at Rhodes. It was faculty-led and students were enlisted as part of the backlash after the fact. It exposes two different approaches to teaching on, I think, many campuses nowadays, right? We teach our students in philosophy to practice the virtues of open-mindedness and, above all, charity. So, you know, reading in context, I always tell my students to pretend like they 
author is in the room with them, what would they say? Would they characterize them as stupid or ridiculous or however else they might be inclined? Would they probably not do as much advanced research as possible so that they're articulating a well-informed question? Whereas on the on the other hand, we have academics who were so quick to condemn Singer, who had in some cases admitted that they hadn't been familiar with Singer at all, but then were so quick to condemn. One of my favorite and most depressing instances in the seemingly unending email thread was from one faculty member who first sent an email saying, I'm not familiar with Singer's views. I'm going to do some research to find out more. And then it was less than two hours later that she sent a follow-up email saying, I've gone and done some research and this guy's views are clearly beyond the pale. I condemn this event. And I just thought, wow, look at what we're showing our students, right? That within just a couple hours, you know, you have done enough to figure out everything you think about this prolific writer whose views cannot be captured that easily. And we're sending this message to students, right? And also, we're not asking students to develop their own careful, considered positions on this. We're asking them to just take at face value what their favorite professor has to say on the topic. So there's a kind of tension emerging between these two very different pedagogical approaches. And it scares me, (laughs) frankly, as a member of the university. No, I think you're quite right, Rebecca. And this is It does make you wonder, you know, like, here we are, one of our key roles, as I see it, educators in higher education, is to engage in the life of the mind and to model how you engage in it. It's not just about doing it in our little silos, but to kind of model it for our students. But if this is the kind of modeling that some of our colleagues are doing, then it does really strike at the heart of what the entire enterprise of higher education is meant to be about. It's no longer about debating ideas. Clearly, it's about upholding values, which are seen by some to be uncontroversial. That in itself, in this this connecting back to what Daniel was saying, is in itself a stark kind of commentary on how some people are approaching ideas, frankly. What's at the heart of this phenomenon is the playing of, so to speak, a trump card. In other words, critics will say, sure, of course, we're committed to the free expression of ideas, but denying someone's humanity or denying the humanity of a group is not what the free expression of ideas is supposed to be about. And I think that there's a serious non sequitur involved there. And For philosophers and social scientists, surely fundamental questions are the nature of liberty, what equality means, what is equal treatment, what is justice, as you just noted. These are real questions. And to suggest that somehow to pursue those amounts to the denial of humanity is incompatible, I think, with thinking through the kinds of fundamental questions, again, that we exist for at a liberal arts college. You mentioned earlier that when you first read about the controversy, you thought, well, this is a happy 
ending. The college did the right thing. And I suppose that's one takeaway. But, you know, we came within a, a whisker of being the next Middlebury or the Dorian Abbott case, which followed soon after. Things really could have gone that way. I mean, Rebecca was particularly courageous in saying, we are not going to stand down. This is something that one would resign over. It was clear the college would have been much happier if we had canceled this event. I think it's also worth saying that the student opposition, to my knowledge, still remains a a minority. But the worst moment for me in this episode came in a class. So in each one of my classes, we talked about the controversy and tried to explain a bit about Singer. And one student said, you know, listening to you articulate all of this is very persuasive to me. On the other hand, I have this message from the uh, highest levels of the administration and from the Office of Disability Services condemning this speaker and attributing ableist prejudices to him. I'm confused. You know, what am I supposed to make of that? And there, I think what the administration did was immediately side with the protest because administrators tend to respond to where the most noise is coming from. And they issued a statement before committing the institution, you know, to a certain position without talking to us first. And I thought that was a shocking failure on several levels and is indicative of what I'd call the problem of the campus culture of free expression or free inquiry. And I think that's the crucial issue. I don't think statements of principles are the solution to anything. You know, conservatives seem to think that if you post the Ten Commandments everywhere, somehow we'll have a a moral reformation. It's not going to happen. Same thing with principles. I think they're important, but the crucial thing is the culture and The task force, in my mind, really reached an inflection point when one day we just posed the question to ourselves, what would a campus culture of free expression look like? And how does that differ from what we see going on in our own neighborhoods? This is the bipartisan policy task force. Yes, Yes. just to clarify. Yes. So So to outsiders, it looks like, well, here is a college that stood up for free inquiry. That was the outcome. But... We could have easily made the front page of the New York Times. I think perhaps it's more accurate to say that the department stood up for academic freedom and the right to have controversial ideas. And the interesting thing is that it wasn't even the controversial ideas, but a controversial speaker on campus and to have that conversation. And I think this alludes to this kind of divide between the administration and the faculty, where the administration then speaks for what the institution's values are without consulting faculty or without even recognizing that this in itself is an issue of discussion and that there are different values on campus, even within the faculty. This goes back to my earlier point about the tension between the two modes of teaching, if we can divide them up that way. Those of us in philosophy and certainly elsewhere in the academy are eager to teach the virtues of open-mindedness and charity, and I should have added patience. And I think 
that the confluence of social media and the pressure on administrators to issue statements is resulting in this incredibly quick reaction, the need to react fast, which is antithetical to patient thinking and care, right? So what happens when there's a crisis and you're asked to respond immediately? That means you can't think because thinking takes time. (laughs) And so we can see the tension between these two modes perfectly there, right? There's enormous pressure on administrators to say something and say it fast. And I think in our own administrator's email, you could actually see that they were attempting to kind of placate both sides, which never works. But it was also this pressure to just respond fast, 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 which is, again, ideally what we're not teaching our students. Slow down. Think it through. (laughs) I think you're quite right. I mean, the whole point, and I often talk about this with a colleague of mine, you know, is you come to college, this is the one space where you're supposed to suspend that urgency and think deeply about things. And that requires time. It requires slowing down. It requires context, seeing things in context. Rebecca, can I ask you, as someone who was chairing the department at that moment, can you reflect a little bit about what the personal experience is of taking such a courageous stance against your colleagues on campus and against pressure from both the students and the administration? Yeah, thanks for asking. It was difficult personally. And to be perfectly honest, I've lost some friendships as a result of it because I think in those moments, you see what friendships are really about and who's going to support you. Again, even if there's disagreement or perceived disagreement, you know, what does it look like to be standing behind the person of the department who's being made into a pariah on campus in that moment? So it was personally challenging. At the same time, it was really encouraging to be a member of the philosophy department and to just know as a unit that if Peter Singer couldn't be invited to give a talk on our campus, then what are we doing? (laughs) Whatever we're doing is not what we think we're doing, and and we might as well just pack up, give up because, right, exactly. I also think it certainly helped me enormously that I've been through this kind of cancellation attempt before myself in 2017 when I published a controversial article called In Defense of Transracialism. And that was a really jarring and surprisingly difficult moment for me personally. And I think anybody who underestimates the personal impact of a massive online shaming ought to revise their position and read more personal accounts of folks who've been through this because it's surprisingly difficult and can have quite unexpected effects on you personally, psychologically, and and academically. It can really make you think differently about the views you even hold, which can be alarming because hopefully that kind of pressure isn't generally the impetus to revise your views, right? Yeah, I expressly asked precisely for that reason, you know, because I feel people don't appreciate what the personal cost is at times. Personal professional cost is for individuals. And that actually explains why people are reluctant to stand up. I sometimes am very critical of people with tenure and I'm like, well, why don't you take the hit and why don't you stand up? And I hold by that. I think that is our responsibility as people with tenure to speak up. 
But at the same time, I must say that I do recognize that it eats up time, energy, your psychological well-being as you're doing this in this climate. So much as I hate the fact that people don't speak up more, I really appreciate that you did. And it doesn't come without that kind of willingness to embrace that cost for the value that you believe in. But I want to come back right now, Daniel, to something that you said, you know, speaking of broader trends on college campuses, this entire kind of industry, if you will, around inclusion that has cropped up, which who wants to be anti-inclusion? No one's anti-inclusion. And the trouble with these things is that the minute you kind of frame them as these hot bombs, you can throw them and then everyone will shut up. They're silencing devices. It's like, oh, you're not being inclusive. And whoever is being accused of that is going to just immediately back down. I do wonder, you know, how is this discourse of inclusion actually being used to exclude and to silence? There are not many people who are talking about this because, again, if you talk about it, you become anti-inclusion. Can you reflect on that a little bit? Every college and, and university now has a diversity, equity, and inclusion bureaucracy. And it's also, I think, the new formulation of the general mission of academic institutions. It's a good thing that colleges and universities have become more diverse. And it's true that in order to create a sense of community, one needs to work at sending the message that everybody is accepted and welcome. And it seems to me, this is certainly true of Rhodes, that our institution has made great strides in becoming more diverse. It was overdue, and the college is sincere in its efforts to send the message of welcoming. And yet, I think, strangely, what's happened is that in our focus on this, we've lost sight of the point, what is the community assembled for, ultimately? That's why I keep asking the question, you know, inclusion in what? The answer ought to be obvious, but I think, strangely, it's no longer obvious. And so... This generates the tension that many administrators especially feel between inclusion and free speech, which, of course, is not the best term to use when talking about a college or university environment. But let's say free expression, free inquiry together. I'd emphasize the inquiry part. And I think the real core of the tension has to do with the idea of identity. There's a way of understanding inclusion that leads to the view that what we need to be doing above all is respecting identity, ratifying identity, giving identities recognition. And on a certain level, that's entirely right, entirely appropriate. But In an intellectual discussion, when you lead with your identity, you're no longer really making an argument, it seems to me. You're making a demand for recognition. And if you start a sentence with, well, as a woman or 
as a non-binary individual, I think this. The assumption somehow is that you've now made a, an epistemological claim that's valid on its face. And the tendency of students especially, I think, is to defer to that, to grant a certain authority on the basis of identity itself. And I would say that short circuits on the front end, all of the kind of inquiry that we ought to be engaging in. I think that's the downside of the otherwise laudable and necessary attention to concerns of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have some questions to ask about the meaning of equity in that trinity. But it bears saying that in practice, what does an intellectual community do? It's in the business of excluding faulty reasoning, bad arguments, poorly written essays. Peer review is a process of exclusion, right? The idea that inclusion is somehow the cardinal moral virtue in a straightforward way just runs up against the problem of the practice of intellectual life, which is this critical argumentation, sifting through arguments and tossing ideas that can't meet a certain standard overboard. We ought to make that more known to students that this is the kind of community that you are being included in now. This is how we proceed. And everybody is part of it. This question is so crucial. The question, how does the language of inclusion sometimes exclude? And I think this is happening all of the time. Namely, you see inclusion advocates actually excluding those they purport to include the most. So this happened with the Singer controversy because we had one member who identified as a member of the disability community, but then who was speaking on behalf of other members of the disabled community at Rhodes. And a really pivotal moment for me was hearing from other members of the disabled community at Rhodes saying, this person does not speak for me. And therefore, the rhetoric of inclusion of disabled voices was ironically exclusive of other disabled voices on campus. You cannot, in fact, join together all the members of one identity group and treat them as if they all feel the same way or think the same thing on a particular question or speaker, especially if you haven't consulted with them. So who is actually being inclusive? We used to call this essentialism and roundly condemn it. Well, that's the irony of it all, that here we are, and I spend a lot of time in my classrooms talking about this, that the deep essentialism in the way this rhetoric is being deployed is actually precisely similar to the essentialism that it's set out to critique. We're oblivious to it somehow. We don't see it because we're blinded by what we think are our moral virtues. And those are the most dangerous things when you're convinced of your own moral virtue to the point that you don't even want to listen to someone who's going to challenge it and make you potentially see another argument. And I also want to say that, you know, the desire to shut someone down who's saying something 
that you don't agree with is a very natural one. We all have it. But that is precisely why we have to consciously resist it. We know we don't need to, you know, reinvent the wheel every time. We know from historical examples, we know from contemporary examples, if we're just bothered to look beyond the shores of the United States, that this does not help promote egalitarianism, equality, or any sense of togetherness, which is a positive. It ends up being a situation where you end up with authoritarianism. Sorry for getting frustrated, but it is frustrating to me that we are in this moment having this conversation. It's frightening. Another irony is that just two weeks before the Singer controversy exploded, we had Jonathan Rausch on campus via a webinar again making the argument for freedom of intellectual inquiry, the uh, unavoidability of generating offense as one engages in that inquiry and reiterating the idea that the rules of engagement are that no one has a, a final say. No one actually has a platform that puts them above critique and response. It was a very well-attended event. We had over 200 people watch it, but it seemed to be entirely forgotten in the Singer controversy. There was in the protest, I think, a disregard of what I would say are the first principles of an intellectual community. You know, Singer's clearly a man of the left, right? And he's to the left of, of everybody on the roads faculty and the majority of the Rhodes faculty would be 95% in agreement with Peter Singer on just about everything but this particular issue, which it turns out Singer has a reputation for, but which was thoroughly distorted in the process. So those who joined the protest, it started with one person, but those who uh, piled on, and that's the right word, were, I think, expressing solidarity with a colleague who they trusted to represent the moral side in, in an argument and didn't think they needed to reflect any further, were willing to accept, you know, essentially stigmatizing the philosophy department for inviting the moral equivalent of a Richard Spencer onto campus. It all smacks, I think, of what Pamela Paretsky has referred to as this notion of moral pollution, that what's in the background of these kinds of cancellation efforts is the idea that it's intolerable to have someone be on a campus, even virtually, if they represent a point of view that a certain segment of the campus community believes amounts to a denial of their humanity. That, I think, is the attitude that drives these otherwise hard-to-fathom kinds of protests, because the underlying circumstances most of the time just don't seem to merit it. I wouldn't advocate inviting Richard Spencer to speak on some subject. What does he have to say that's of use to a veritable academic community? But to equate Peter Singer, you know, he was condemned for endorsing genocide. The most lurid claims were being thrown out there by professors. 
and filtering down to students. That's a shocking turn of events. It reminds me of what keeps me up at night <laughs> with, with all of this, which is how do we actually converse with those on the opposite side of these issues? Because I think nobody here wants to be preaching to the choir. And obviously, there's a chasm between these approaches to pedagogy and learning. And so we did offer to host a separate panel on the topic of disability. And in an email of mine that, from my understanding, was not well received, certainly not by the individual who first issued the condemnation of Singer, I suggested that we could, as a department, host an event on the topic of disability and that it would be great if this professor would consider participating. You know, and the response was really disheartening. It was, again, a faculty-wide email just objecting to the invitation and reiterating that this individual would never want to participate in an event organized by our department. And to me, this is the the worst part of all of this is that we have professors purportedly part of the same intellectual community who just aren't speaking, some of whom apparently are offended at even the invitation to speak. So how do we how do we begin to <laughs> bridge this divide? It's terrifying. I think you've, you know, really hit the nail on the head. And I feel that this is particularly depressing when there's so many attacks on higher education from from the extreme right that we amongst ourselves are finding it impossible to actually speak to each other. We are actively resisting it. Yeah, campuses are are polarized just as the wider society is. Yeah. That's a fact of life. That's a fact of life and it's depressing because one would expect and perhaps that's my naivete, right, is that one would expect that academics who were in the business of slowing down, thinking deeply, would take the time to do it. But I just wanted to make one clarification. It's not the protest in itself that you had a problem with. People have the right to protest. It is the demand to silence and to cancel. Yes, that's a crucial distinction because... Certainly, the right to protest as part of what it means to be a member of a community that gets to hear right, contesting views and opinions, and that's absolutely essential. But yeah, the moment that turns into, and we demand that this event not take place, now we're in a different territory. Yeah, in our first response, our joint response to the complaint, we acknowledge that, of course, you have every right to express your disagreement. But what we cannot accept is the implication that because a speaker's views are giving offense to some segment of the campus, that that in itself is a reason to disinvite the person. It's that notion that the provocation is the thing that must be avoided that notion is simply incompatible with our purpose. That's why this, for us, really was a very significant issue. If we stood down on this, really, what would, what would be the point of our continuing as a philosophy department? 
there could have been such a wonderful moment. I mean, this webinar was a conversation. It was called Pandemic Ethics, a conversation with Peter Singer and myself, Dan, and Eric were posing questions and pushing back. We were taking questions from the audience throughout the entire conversation. So had any of those individuals with concerns just come to the webinar and pose their questions, there would have been, you know, the opportunity to say to Singer, hey, what are your views on this? Or I find your line here really disturbing. Can you explain it? And there could have been just this amazing modeling of what it looks like to converse with an individual with whom you think you vehemently disagree or with whom, in fact, you may vehemently disagree. But the only way to find out is to go to the horse's mouth, so to speak. But that didn't happen, and it's the saddest part of this. It was a forum just perfect for individuals to raise their concerns if they wanted to. We also didn't want to uh, abandon the important topic of what are the ethical dimensions of this pandemic response. So, So we gave Singer an opportunity at the beginning to address the criticism, which he did, I thought, quite effectively. And we returned to it at the end with an invitation to actually have a a separate conversation on this. But it's true. People could have taken the opportunity to criticize Singer and hear the response. It's also true that one can not attend an event. That's something else that you're perfectly free to do. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly, yeah, that wasn't the point of our event. But it is telling that we didn't receive any questions or participation from, again, of course, it's their prerogative, but it speaks to the larger concern about the kind of community that we lack. Yeah. And I think the lasting damage is the sense that I certainly got from the administration's response that our department acted irresponsibly in putting on this event with this invited speaker. If they really believe that, I think every department on campus ought to do some serious reflection on just what are the rules of the of the road here. It's an outrageous assumption. I hadn't quite realized that that's how the administration pegged the philosophy department. But if uh, pursuing and standing up for a free exchange of ideas is irresponsible, then truly, I do think this goes to the heart of the problem of what what is the university for and um, and why are we why are we collecting um, in this place to what are we pursuing? What exactly are we pursuing if this is considered irresponsible? Rebecca Tuvel is Associate Professor and Chair of the Philosophy Department, and Daniel Cullen is Professor of Philosophy at Rhodes College. If you enjoyed what you heard here today and would like more discussions about cancel culture, censorship, and freedom of inquiry, please consider becoming a member at banish.substack.com. You'll get access to bonus segments, written columns, and special episodes. More importantly, you'll be supporting all the work we do here at Booksmart Studios. Don't forget to rate and share Banished on whichever platform you listen and do leave a comment so we know what you think. Our success here at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. 
Vanish is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Volo, and I, as always, am Amna Khaled. Toodaloo!